Well, I don't have a Twitter account, and you should be thankful for that. And I don't follow anyone on Twitter, but yesterday I saw a brilliant tongue-in-cheek tweet someone posted that I think was spot on. The tweet read, quote, all my pastor friends trying to figure out what to preach on in 2022, I stumbled across this great list of sermon series ideas. And attached was a picture of the table of contents of the Bible with all the Old and New Testament books listed in order. Amen? And I'm so grateful that God has led me as a pastor and us as a church to simply just study through books of the Bible together. And in the providence of God, we are in the middle of a sermon series on the book of 1 Peter, which we have titled, A Pocket Guide for Pilgrims, How to Live Holy, Hope-Filled Lives in a Hostile World that is Not Our Home. And in light of some of the major themes that we have been learning about in this letter, I think you would agree with me that a shorter title could simply be Living as Pilgrims in a Pagan Culture. Peter was writing to believers who were living in a culture that was growing increasingly hostile toward Christianity and watching what was happening in Rome under Nero's regime convinced Peter that it was only a matter of time before the persecution of Christians would intensify everywhere else. And so he wanted to prepare his readers from, for the coming storm and equip them to be able to stand firm as aliens and strangers and win others over by their radically different countercultural lives. In other words, rather than hunkering down or huddling up or hiding out until we get to heaven and simply watching the world go to hell in a handbasket, as they say, we should take advantage of the moment to share with others the hope that we have in Christ. And Peter explicitly says that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Well, I don't need to tell you this, but we are living in a day where right is called wrong and wrong is called right. And those of us whose beliefs and values and standards and convictions are based on the Bible, we will be misunderstood and we will be misrepresented and we will be maligned and mistreated and minimized and perhaps even fired or fined or arrested. We may not lose our life, but we may lose our livelihood, like some florists and bakers and web designers have in recent years for refusing to provide their services for events that go against their convictions regarding biblical sexuality. And yet those were just some of the early warning signs that a volcano is about to erupt in our culture. In the last two weeks, these are some of the news stories that have caught my attention and perhaps yours as well. Leah Thomas, a transgender male on the women's swim team at the University of Pennsylvania, dominated all the races and smashed all the school records at a recent meet until he got beat by a transgender female who's transitioning to be a man. I'm confused. But that's messed up. J.K. Rowling, the woman behind the Harry Potter franchise, continues to be harshly criticized and canceled, if you will, cancel culture, right? Canceled for affirming that the transgender movement contradicts basic biology. Aaron Musser, the pastor of St. Luke's Lutheran Church in Chicago, recently dressed in full drag for the Sunday service wearing this gold gown with a cross on the front of it 
and began the message by calling the children up to the front to sit with him and asked if they'd ever seen a drag queen before. Apparently, he is just one of over 400 queer ministers, as they call themselves, in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. In Finland, a Lutheran bishop and a conservative politician are being charged with hate speech and could be sentenced up to two years in prison for quoting Romans 1 in a tweet confronting a liberal denomination for sponsoring the LGBTQ Helsinki Pride event and publishing a pamphlet promoting a biblical view of marriage and sexuality. Closer to home, in West Lafayette, Indiana, a city ordinance has been proposed. It's called Ordinance 31-21, which, if passed, would criminalize faith-based counseling and fine counselors and counseling centers $1,000 a day for attempting to speak biblical truth in love to minors wrestling with same-sex attraction or gender confusion. We were made aware of this by... uh, the ACBC ministry, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, Faith Church in Lafayette is one of the main training centers uh, who will be affected by this if that um, ordinance is passed. And then lastly, in Canada, Bill C-4 was passed last week with the support of all political parties and no opposition at all from any elected member of parliament, even those who claim to be Christians. And this bill, C4, outlaws what's referred to as conversion therapy. I'm sure you're all aware of that. Um, And it's in order to protect, it was passed in order to protect individuals who struggle with homosexuality or gender dysphoria from being coerced and abused by parents, teachers, counselors, or ministers who could face up to five years in prison for simply speaking biblical truth into the lives of those in bondage to sexual sins and seeking to help them abandon their sinful lifestyle. So, Based on that new bill, which is now law, no individual or institution in Canada is allowed to promote or provide conversion therapy. In other words, you can't change or repress or reduce a person's sexual orientation. Why? Because according to the preamble of the bill, the belief that, and I'm quoting here, heterosexuality and gender identity corresponding to the sex assigned a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations and gender expressions is a, you ready for this? A myth. In other words, what the Bible teaches about marriage being between one man and one woman and that sex should be confined to marriage, and that if you are born a boy, you're a boy, and if you're born a girl, you're a girl, is, according to this bill, a misconception. Or, if you want to define what a myth means, a widely held but false belief or idea. So, God's truth has been defined as a myth. Thankfully, there are a group of like-minded Canadian pastors who see this bill as tantamount to criminalizing Christianity because it essentially makes it illegal to share the gospel, which if you understand the gospel and if you've experienced the gospel, you know that is the ultimate conversion therapy. It's the ultimate conversion treatment or remedy for sexual deviance and all sorts of other deviance, which we all fall into that category, by the way. We're all sinful deviants who needed to be desperately saved from ourselves and from our sin. And so in order to put the Canadian Parliament on notice that they have attacked God's word and that they as pastors do not accept and will not submit to this new bill, today they're all preaching messages on biblical sexuality. Good for them. And they appealed to faithful pastors 
here in America to do the same in order to stand with them and show our support and our unity uh, with them. And so as I prayerfully considered their earnest appeal to join them this morning, I saw a quote by Martin Luther that sealed the deal for me. This is what Martin Luther said. Quote, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefields besides, besides is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at this point. We are all aware of the aggressive power and influence of the homosexual transgender agenda. I won't even call it a movement, it's an agenda in our country. And they are bent on not only normalizing their perversion, but also legalizing it and ultimately criminalizing any opposition to it. And we as Christians are called by God to unflinchingly and unwaveringly stand on the unchanging standard of the Bible and to lovingly confront these damning sins that are being legalized and normalized in our culture. Man's laws may change, but God's word never changes. Satan and his evil world system will gladly send people to hell, but God has called us to rescue people with the life-changing truth of the gospel. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 11 says, rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this. Does not he who weighs the hearts perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And then James chapter 5, verse 19, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That is our calling as Christians and as a church. And sadly, rather than rescuing people trapped in homosexual or transgender lifestyle, some Christians and some churches who have capitulated to the trend in our culture toward tolerance and acceptance make it all about relating to them and receiving them in. And in an effort to promote love and, and unity, they gladly welcome practicing homosexuals and transgender folks as members of their churches and even ordain homosexual pastors and worship leaders and have no problem performing same-sex weddings, which is a misnomer, by the way, because if it's not a marriage, it's not a wedding, according to the scriptures. Some of you may be familiar with a church called Cathedral of Hope up in Dallas. It's the largest gay church in the world. I don't know how it got it in Texas, but it is. Um, some 4,000 people apparently go to this church where they reinterpret the Bible to justify their sinful lifestyle. Their former pastor is a homosexual. He wrote a best-selling book titled Holy Homosexuals, The Truth About Being Gay or Lesbian and Christian, which is, sounds shocking, but that's just one of a number of books like this. There's another popular book written in recent years by a gay guy named Matthew Vines. It's called God and the Gay Christian, The Biblical Case in Support of Same-Sex Relationships. And I think these titles beg the question, is it possible for someone to be a homosexual and also a Christian? Is there such a thing as a gay Christian? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a passage that 
I assume you're familiar with. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine, Paul writing to the believers in Corinth who got saved out of a very decadent culture. Corinth was the Mecca for uh, basically worshiping false gods through sexual expression. And so this is what he said, or do you not know, this is 1 Corinthians 6, 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's not referring to those that perhaps have committed adultery or perhaps committed some homosexual act. He's talking about this is your lifestyle. This is who you are. You are doing this all the time. This is what you have chosen, how you've chosen to live your life. You say, well, how does... uh, a, a, a so-called Christian homosexual get around a verse like that? Well, they cleverly reinterpret all the passages in the Bible that clearly, unequivocally condemn homosexuality. You may be, or you may have heard of the Queen James Bible. Anybody heard of that? You've heard of the King James Bible, right? There's, there's, a, there's a Queen James Bible, And this is a description of that Bible on the Amazon website. And I'm quoting here, just copy and paste, right? The Queen James Bible is based on the King James Bible and is edited to prevent homophobic misinterpretation. Anti-LGBT Bible interpretations commonly cite only eight verses in the Bible that they interpret to mean homosexuality is a sin. Eight verses in a book of thousands. The Queen James Bible seeks to resolve interpretive ambiguity in the Bible as it pertains to homosexuality. I didn't realize there was any ambiguity. God didn't make it vague. He didn't stutter. It's very clear. And I don't know why Christian celebrities, when a mic is put in their face and say, hey, what do you think about homosexuality? They, 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 they have an awkward pause. Granted, it's a, it's a cultural minefield, right, um, that will have dramatic effect on how people perceive them based on their answer to that question. But to, to waver and to waffle and to say, well, I'm not sure and I'm not, I don't know that anyone can be sure and I'm going to leave that up for, I'm going to leave that up to, you know, somebody else to decide and either it tells me they don't know their Bible or they're ashamed of what the Bible says. So, going on in this description of the Queen James Bible, we edited those eight verses in a way that makes homophobic interpretations impossible. And this was their closing sentence here. The Queen James Bible is a big, fabulous Bible. You can't choose your sexuality, but you can choose Jesus, and now you can choose your Bible too. Well, sure, if you choose to Right, a sinful lifestyle. Well, you just got to find another Bible, right? That that can somehow justify your lifestyle. And so, as we think about some of these things, it's it's easy to see why some Christians, some churches, respond to homosexuality with and, and transgenderism with great anger and great hostility. You probably have heard of a church uh, named the Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, Fred Phelps used to be the pastor, he's no longer alive, but talk about taking the concept of a church being known for what it's against to a whole new level. The church's website is godhatesfags.com. That's how you find their church. And they believe and they preach that all the bad things that happen in our country is God just pouring out his wrath on us for tolerating homosexuality. So 9-11 all the dead soldiers, uh, all the school shootings, 
And so they go and actually picket at these funerals of dead soldiers and, and, and children who have been killed in these school massacres, and they picket with their signs saying, you know, God hates fags and God hates homosexuality and you need to repent and talk about tacky, right? And so when it comes to, to how we respond to as Christians and as a church to the issue of homosexuality, transgenderism, I think there are, are, are two, these, these are really the two extremes that we need to avoid. Courteous accommodation and obnoxious condemnation. Those are two, um, I think, unbiblical extremes. You say, well, how then should we respond? Well, look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Matthew chapter 9 Verse 36, when in doubt, look at Jesus, right? Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Matthew records, seeing the people, he felt what? Compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And he went on to say, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So based on Christ's response to the, to the unbelieving crowds that were all around him, and his heart went out to them because they were distressed, they were dispirited, and they, they, were, just, they were sheep without a shepherd. It's, it's no wonder they were, had wandered away so far from the truth of God's word, they had no shepherd. And so I would suggest to you what I believe to be an uncompromisingly biblical response that avoids these two extremes of accommodation and condemnation, and it simply is compassionate confrontation. Compassionate confrontation. In other words, we should never be mean to homosexuals or transgender people or treat them with disgust or disdain or avoid them? Why? Because we know that those who struggle with homosexuality or gender identity are dealing with the effects of living in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed body and a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. And to those who don't feel at home in their bodies, if you will, we offer the hope of the gospel, which is not a temporary physical transition, but a permanent spiritual transformation that will come to a glorious climax when Christ returns and redeems and restores this broken world and redeems and restores our broken bodies. Amen? Now again, that doesn't mean that we need to allow practicing homosexuals to join our church or put them in leadership or marry them. But we should cultivate an atmosphere where homosexuals, people with gender, gen, gender dysphoria, feel welcome to come and they can hear the good news that God sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross to set people free from their life of sin and that they can be forgiven for their sin if they're willing to repent and receive Jesus Christ. Now before we take some time and do a quick survey of what the Bible says about homosexuality and transgenderism, I want to acknowledge that for some of you sitting here this morning, this is not simply a theoretical or theological discussion. This is deeply and painfully personal. I know because of conversations I've had with some of you that you have family members who have chosen a homosexual or transgender lifestyle and it grieves you. And you've had to make some difficult decisions regarding how and when and even if you interact with them at all. I also want to be sensitive to the fact that there may be people in our church who struggle with homosexual desires 
or gender identity issues, which are not unlike other sinful tendencies and temptations on one level. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you but that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with every temptation, he'll provide a way of escape. So we need to be careful not to single out homosexuality and transgenderism as if they are worse sins than any other sin and that there is a hotter place in hell for, 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 for these types of folks. What may be repulsive to you may be a serious temptation to someone else. We all don't struggle with the same sins, but we are sinners. And like Paul, we should consider ourselves the worst sinner we know. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. And that will keep us from being quick to judge others and focus more on their sin than our own sin. Or to self-righteously look down our noses at others like the Pharisee did with the tax collector or to cast stones at them like the Pharisees wanted to do with the woman caught in adultery. <clears throat> I'll never forget taking a family out to lunch one Sunday years ago and we decided to go over to Sam's boat when it was still there. And we sat down and began to enjoy a time of fellowship. And our waitress showed up in her Daisy Duke shorts and her, and, and her uh, uh, bikini top. And my first thought was the gal that was with us was very kind of proper and discreet and modest gal. And I thought, oh man, this, is, this looks great. The pastor invites him to lunch and look who shows up to serve us. And I was so grateful that when our waitress walked away... This gal simply said, you know what? She just needs Jesus. She just needs Jesus. What, 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 what should we expect? She's, how, how do unbelievers dress? They, they dress like that, right? They don't know any better. And before she's going to change her outfit, God needs to change her heart, right? And so I was so grateful for just a godly, humble, gracious, um, biblical response Now, that was all for free. That was just background. Let, let's just, again, quickly, and we could do a whole series for weeks on this, but I don't want to do that. Just today, stand in solidarity, unity with our brothers in Canada who are taking a bold stand, and it will be very interesting to see how the government responds to what they're doing today. We need to pray for them. Uh, it, they're throwing down the gauntlet. Now, they're going to see what the government is actually going to do. Are they, how, what kind of teeth is in this bill? Um, they're testing it this morning. So, a biblical view of sexuality begins back in Genesis chapter 1. So take your Bibles and turn back with me. And we're just going to kind of fly through some passages here. And we need to understand God's original design for creation, marriage, and family. Genesis chapter 1. Verses 27 and, 20, and 28. And by the way, we're not going to look at any verses that you already haven't read or uh, studied. These are common verses. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, here it is, be fruitful and what? multiply and fill the earth. I think it's pretty obvious that homosexuals cannot fulfill this command to be fruitful and what? Multiply. They cannot procreate, which was one of the purposes of God created men and women and designing marriage. It's impossible for them to reproduce and without reproduction, you have no civilization. And so same-sex marriage destroys the basic building block of society. And if you take us it to its logical conclusion, mankind would become extinct. That's all I'll say about that verse. Genesis 2, verse 18, next chapter. 
By the way, I might ask somebody to grab me a thing of water here because I think that AC is kind of drying out my throat and I'm going to start coughing here. Thank you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. You say, well, what does that mean? A helper suitable for him. Well, let's um, read on. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called a living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And again, the image here is that the animals came in the same way they came onto the ark. How did they come? Two by two. They didn't bring two, hippo, two male hippopotamuses on the ark because they hippopotamus would be extinct in a few short years. Thanks, Sam. They didn't bring two female giraffes, you know, on the ark or there wouldn't be giraffes today, right? That's the point. And so there was a, a male animal and a, and a female animal. And he says we didn't, he didn't see a, a helper suitable for him. In other words, he was, he was kind of, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a theme here. As all these animals keep passing, there's a, there's a guy, one, and there's a girl, one. And there's another guy, one, another girl, another guy, one, another girl. And he goes, and he's starting maybe feeling a little, little bit left out. Like, hey, where's my counterpart, right? Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place, at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman... Not another man, but a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Pronouns are important. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God clearly created two distinct sexes to complement and complete each other, a man and a woman. Not two of the same, but two different parts that fit together perfectly, i.e. one flesh. This is not a biology class. I think you can figure that out yourself. Interesting. Those of you that are plumbers or electricians, you talk about male-female parts all day long, right? Because you go to the hardware store. You go to Home Depot, right? You, hey, can you help? Oh, yeah, I got a male part. I need a female part. You got to find these things that fit together. It's like, oh, these ends don't connect. I need something else. So it's basic common sense that a man matches with a woman and not with another man. And that a woman matches up with a man, not with another woman. So, so physically, anatomically, it's a no-brainer. And homosexuality is a satanic attempt to corrupt and distort and pervert God's original design of the beautiful relationship between a man and a woman. That's, and, that's, and that's why God hates it so much. And if you ever wonder what God thinks about homosexuality or feels about homosexuality, you just need to turn to Genesis chapter 19, where you find the classic story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And apart from the worldwide flood in Genesis chapter 6, the most notorious manifestation of God's wrath in the Old Testament is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the two angels that had come down to visit Abraham in Genesis 18, this is what they said in verse 20, and the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. 
verse, uh, chapter 19, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Lot knew it wasn't wise to be out in the town square at night. He knew the kind of people and what they did at night. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter, and they called to Lot and said to them, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. And they weren't talking about having them out for a cup of tea. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. I mean, that's just a scathing uh, um, um, revelation of where Lot was at and how he had moved into the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and had gone downhill in his own morals. That he was willing to sacrifice his own daughters to be raped by this crowd. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came nearer to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. You would have thought that they would have got the point. Whoa, we can't see anymore. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. But it says so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. And either, even though that God struck them blind, they still tried to give expression to their homosexual desires. Well, you know how that story ends. Verse 24, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew through those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. It's interesting that Sodom and Gomorrah seems to have been intended to be a preview of hell. God supernaturally expresses anger against their sin by raining down fire and brimstone from heaven. And whenever you hear the words fire and brimstone... In the Bible, that's the language of what? Of hell. And so rather than sending the, the inhabitants of, of Sodom and Gomorrah to hell, it's as if God sent hell to them. And it baffles me how liberal scholars and, and homosexual advocates would have us believe that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah simply because they didn't show hospitality to their angelic guests. I'm not making that up. And yet Jude 7 makes it clear, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulge in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The primary reason God judged Sodom and Gomorrah was the abominable, detestable sin of homosexuality. And I think this horrifying and haunting incident of divine judgment serves as an unforgettable example of how much God hates sin, and it sends an unmistakable message to all future generations that he will punish sin. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6 
He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who live ungodly lives thereafter. Turn to Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus 18. Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. By the way, you can read the very next verse. Homosexuality is put right next to bestiality. How about Leviticus 20, verse 13? Leviticus 20, verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. By the way, in the same context, God says those who commit adultery deserve death. Those who commit incest deserve death. So it's not, he's just not calling out and, and making an example out of homosexuals. It's, it's anything related to sexual sin. And then 1 Timothy, jumping ahead here real quick, because you say, well, that's just the Old Testament law, Leviticus. That doesn't apply to us today. Well, according to Paul, it does. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So God's made it very clear in his word that he hates homosexuality. It disgusts him. He views it as a sin worthy of death. Now with the time we have remaining, let's look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, which we should be familiar with because we recently studied through this book. But if I look back at some of these messages that I preached and don't remember them, then surely you don't either, okay? So it's okay to be stirred up by way of reminder, right? And Romans 1, really, verses 18 through 32, is a commentary on our culture, if you have ever asked yourself the question, what in the world is going on right now? Hey, have you thought that recently? What in the world is going on? Paul gives us a very clear answer in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, since he made Yosemite, the, the students are looking at that right now. His invisible attributes, his eternal powers, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So essentially what that, those verses describe is how God revealed himself clearly to every one of us. So there would be no question in anybody's mind that he is there. And that he deserves to be honored and he deserves to be thanked and obeyed and served. 
But rather than doing that, men have rebelled against him. And said, nah, we, we don't want that. We want something else. And so they exchanged the glory of God, which by the way it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the, what? Glory of God. In other words, we don't glorify God the way we should and the way he's worthy of. We don't honor him and, and, and thank him. And so we rebel against him and, and exchange him for other things. And then there's a big therefore in verse 24. How does God respond to man's rebellion? It's called retribution. It's called giving man over to their sin and all of its consequences. Notice it says, therefore God gave them over. Three times. It says it again in verse 26. God gave them over. Verse 28. God gave them over. This was a, a judicial term used to describe a judge sentencing someone or handing them over to be punished. You say, well, what's the punishment for man's sin? More sin. And instead of showing mercy towards us by restraining us from sin and all of its consequences, God reveals his wrath against us by allowing us to continue in our sin, that we go deeper into sin and we do grosser things and as a result we experience greater consequences. And remember, this all starts with idolatry. Choosing to worship someone or something other than God, which leads to this downward spiral of immorality, homosexuality, and then just plain irrationality, insanity. Notice verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. I think this is just a reference to, to general sexual immorality. And for decades, there has been a sexual revolution taking place in our country, and it is now to the point that sex is no longer a gift from God reserved exclusively for a husband and wife in marriage, but it's a, a, a tryst to have with anyone, anytime, anywhere. And those who save themselves from marriage or stay faithful to their spouse are very rare and actually viewed as oddballs or weirdos or prudes. And again, why? Why is this happening? For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creature who is blessed forever. Amen. So when you punt the truth of God, the only thing left is to believe a lie. You can either believe the truth or you can believe the, a lie. What are you going to choose, right? Well, when you choose not to believe the truth of God, you're left to believe a lie. And that's what all this is. Especially the next verse, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned the desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This is clearly a reference to homosexuality. And I think we need to take a, a moment here to dissect this a little bit because the Bible assumes that men will lust after women. Matthew chapter 5 verse 28, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, hey, if a man looks at a woman to lust after her, he's already committed what? Adultery in his heart. And Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 7 that women will burn with passion for men. He's talking about this, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. There, there's a mutual burning there. It's not like the guy 
just has to get married. No, it's the girl is having those same uh, feelings, those same affections, those same desires. And that's why God wisely and graciously designed marriage to be a righteous outlet for those natural desires that he gave us as men and women towards one another. However, according to what Paul says, it's unnatural for a man to lust after another man or a woman to lust after another woman. And that's why we shouldn't think that same-sex attraction is no different or on the same level as every other sin. And so I know that might seem like I'm contradicting what I said earlier, but there is a nuance here that I think we have to get our minds around because there's a growing movement in the church right now being led by well-intended people who want to show compassion towards homosexuality without condoning homosexuality. There's a man by the name of Sam Alberry who wrote a book, Is God Anti-Gay? He's an Anglican pastor in England who openly admits that he struggles with same-sex attraction, but he chooses not to act on those desires and has remained celibate and even defends a biblical view of marriage. And uh, he's been embraced by a lot of people. Uh, In fact, he's written some really good books that I've read on other subjects, one being the church. But he would have us believe that same-sex attraction or homosexual desires are okay as long as you don't act on them. And there's no difference between a man lusting after a woman and a man lusting after another man, and the latter is no more sinful than the former. However, I would submit to you, based on what Paul says here in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that same-sex attraction in itself is sinful because it's focused on and directed at and expressed toward an improper object. It is a misplaced affection and that it goes against God's design for sexuality. You could refer to it as sexual disorientation. In other words, and and disorientation means a state of mental confusion. You're confused. That's not who you're supposed to be attracted to. That's not how God wired you. That's not how God created you. And in verse 27, both the inward desires, the the same-sex burning, he talks about that they burned in their desire for one another, and the outward actions, the same-sex behavior, are both condemned. Not just the, the behavior, but the desires themselves. So for a man to be attracted to a woman and have a desire towards her is not in itself wrong as long as that desire is not lustful, selfish, covetous, or immoral. God created men with a normal, natural desire for women and women with a normal, natural desire for men. But same-sex desires, again, are sinful in and of themselves because they go against God's created order. Maybe let me say it this way. If someone is being sexually attracted to someone of the opposite sex, that's a good thing, and those desires need to be controlled. But if someone is sexually attracted to someone of the same sex, that is a bad thing, and those desires don't need to be controlled or even repressed, they need to be changed, redirected, reoriented, so you desire what God wants you to desire. And a person, you say, well, how does that? Well, a person can change their sexual orientation by choosing to desire what God designed them to desire. Maybe a better way to say it, a person can change their sexual disorientation by choosing to desire what God designed them to desire. And there's some high-profile examples of this. Some of you are familiar with a, a woman named Rosario Butterfield. Um, maybe you have heard of Jackie Hill Perry, She wrote a book called Gay Girl, Good God, the story of who I was and who God has always been. And so these are some high-profile individuals who openly admit, hey, I I was a lesbian. I I, I bought in. I was all in until I met Jesus, and he changed my heart, and he actually changed my desires, and now I'm happily married and have children, and why? How does that happen? God does that. If 
It's interesting when you look at this, this exchange concept here in Romans 1, anyone who chooses a homosexual lifestyle or a transgender lifestyle is telling the world they've exchanged God's truth for a lie. That's what they're saying. They're just, just kind of shouting it, right? They don't have to tell you that, but just their lifestyle reveals that. And as such, they will suffer the consequences. Notice he says at the end of 27, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. You know this. It's all over the news that the homosexual community is infected with AIDS and all sorts of STDs and and, and maybe more concerning is how pervasive loneliness and despair and suicide and even violent crime is all part of that lifestyle. And let me just say this, to, to set the record straight, that the rampant homosexuality that we see in our country is not the cause of God's wrath, but the consequence of God's wrath. It is God's wrath. In other words, homosexuality isn't the reason for God's judgment, but it's the judgment itself. And if that wasn't enough, look at verse 28. And, as they, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over one more time to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So it goes from sexual immorality to homosexuality to moral insanity where the mind no longer functions properly. You, you think and act irrationally. You say and do things that don't make any sense. You call good evil and evil good. Everything just gets switched. And there are no lack of examples of the lunacy and the absurdity in our present culture when the Boy Scouts decide to allow gays to be part of their organization and now they're letting girls join. Boy Scouts. Okay? We have gender-neutral restrooms where guys and gals are allowed to use the same space at the same time. And I think the issue of transgenderism has brought us to the next cultural crossroads as a nation. And it's almost as if Caitlyn Jenner is just a thing of the past. That's like in our rearview mirror, right? I mean, it's just, it's just that was kind of the most maybe publicized and praised transition of a public figure. We were all kind of forced to watch that unfold. And hopefully when you saw Bruce Jenner dressed up in as a girl, you thought of Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And if I could say it as clearly as I could possibly say it, there is no such thing as a transgender person. There's no such thing. God creates everyone, either male or female, you're either a he or a she, and a he shouldn't be called a she, and a she shouldn't be called a he. And even if we were asked to call Bruce, Caitlin, by Bruce himself, I'm going to keep calling him Bruce. Even if he thinks or feels like he's a woman trapped in a man's body. And no matter how much makeup he puts on and no matter if he chooses to wear high heels or not. The point is, those who claim to be transgender are out of touch with reality. They're claiming to be someone other than who God made them or assigned them to be. And ultimately, transgender individuals are at war with God. Romans 1, right? What they're saying is, I don't like who God made me. I'm going to change who I am. I'm not going to let God tell me who I am. I'm going to be my own God. And so they end up playing God by having what used to be called a, a sex change, now a gender reassignment surgery, to alter who God created them. 
They're, they're attempting to recreate themselves. And sadly, parents are going along with this, subjecting their children to sex change procedures just because the kids think that they're in the wrong body and they maybe play with Barbies instead of G.I. Joes and things like that. It's crazy. I mean, it absolutely makes no sense. And so how are we to respond to this craziness? Well, if we believe the diagnosis of the issue is here in Romans 1, then we must also follow the prescription of Romans 1. Notice verse 14, Romans 1.14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, to the homosexuals and the adulterers and the transgender people, you fill in the blanks. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we must unashamedly, but graciously, confront homosexuals and transgender folks with the truth of the gospel which warns of eternal damnation for all those who practice these things but promises the power to change, forgiveness, eternal salvation if you repent and embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so these folks need to know that God extends grace and hope to those who are enslaved to these kinds of sexual sin. One more passage, just go quickly back to the verse we already went to, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I read the bad news, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, about how no unrighteous person will inherit the kingdom of God, and he gives that list of all sorts of sins, many of them sexual sins. But in verse 11, this is 1 Corinthians 6, 11, such were some of you. In other words, there were former homosexuals in the church in Corinth. Just as there were former homosexuals probably sitting here at Lakeside Bible Church and in, in biblical churches all around the world. But notice he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God with regenerated hearts all these converted Corinthians were praising their Savior, along with former fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and thieves and coveters and revilers and swindlers. Such were some of you. Such were some of us. You say, how did that happen? They experienced, you ready for this? Conversion. Conversion. But they weren't converted by their parents or their teachers or their counselors or their pastors. They were converted by Jesus Christ. You can't outlaw Jesus. You can't outlaw the gospel. And when you Stop calling these kinds of things diseases and disorders that really rob people of any hope because there's no cure, there's no way for them to escape. But when you start calling it what it is, a sinful choice, that gives people hope that change is possible with the help of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the Son of God. Christ died on the cross to deliver us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And when we confess our sin to God and seek his forgiveness, he cleanses us and he frees us from bondage to sin and he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell within us to help us develop new sexual desires and sexual habits that please the Lord and line up with his word and who he created us to be, amen? Let's pray. Lord, even though we are righteously indignant and rightfully disturbed about what is happening in our world right now, we thank you for giving us hope that you can and you will save and transform the lives of those 
who were enslaved to sexual sin and Lord, all of us were enslaved to some sort of sin at one point, but you, through the gospel, transformed our lives. Help us to live blameless lives in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation as we hold up and hold forth your word, that we would be winsome wanderers in this world as we head towards our heavenly home, and that we would take advantage of this cultural moment to proclaim the hope that we have in Christ. We ask this in his name, amen. Amen, well, I know you weren't expected that this morning, but uh, hopefully that was uh, an encouragement, and uh, please be praying for our brothers and sisters up in Canada, because uh, it's gonna be interesting to see how this all goes down for them today.